Well, this week, we're going to think together about the implications for suffering. If what Scripture teaches us about the heart and body is true, then what are the implications for suffering? And so, turn, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 1. This is actually where we're going to spend all of our time this morning. 1 Peter 1. We'll be in 3 through 9. Because I think the implications are for hope and joy in suffering. And so as we jump in, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Well, Father, we look to you and to your word to give light, to give truth, to give perspective, to provide a means by which we can interpret the world in which we live, and especially suffering. And so we pray that you would make us a people who suffer well, and by that we mean a people who, in the midst of suffering, abound in hope and abound in joy, that we're always ready to give a reason for the hope that we have. And so we pray that the world around us would see our hope, would see our joy and would wonder why, where does it come from? And so we ask that you would produce in us real hope and joy in the midst of hardship. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, my background is counseling. And so I came up through graduate school training and counseling. And I remember learning time and time again that every counseling system in the world is trying to instill hope. It's a goal of all psychotherapy and all the therapy books. It's going to talk about hope. But the big question is, okay, hope in what? There was actually an article published a few years ago by Psychology Today that was titled, Hope, A Foundation for All Psychotherapy That Works. I mean, that's how big a deal hope is, even to an unbelieving world. And the article defined hope as believing tomorrow will be better. That was their definition of hope. I mean, think about that. Just, Just believing tomorrow will be better, whatever that means. The Oxford Dictionary defines hope as a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. Pretty ambiguous. But that's what hope is, this expectation and desire that a certain thing will happen. And and what that certain thing is seems to matter. Hope gives people a reason to keep going, a certain thing to look forward to. It's just what that certain thing is, is essential. And that's what we'll talk about tomorrow, or today. Not tomorrow. Yeah, hope is about tomorrow. Yeah, y'all can hope that we'll get to it. Yeah. What I found really unusual and really strange even in all the years of graduate school training and all the reading after is what is never a goal of psychotherapy is joy. In fact, we were trained to never promise people joy. Don't ever promise them any kind of deep happiness There was a vague sense of happiness that you're aiming for, but you never promised it, let alone joy. And what we were taught is that sets the bar way too high. That really coping is what you're aiming for. Some achieving of self-defined goals, but not joy. That's not something the mental health industry could ever promise. We'll promise hope, Because hope can be vague. Just hope that something will be better. That there's something to look forward to tomorrow. But don't promise joy. And what the world for sure doesn't see is the critical link between hope and joy. Because what I'll argue this morning from Scripture is that joy is the proof of rightly placed hope. It's the proof of it. 
Listen to Proverbs 10, 28. The hope of the righteous brings joy. Hear that connection? The hope of the righteous brings joy, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. Expectation, hope. The hope of the wicked, it's going to end in nothing but death. We could even say that hope is the seed that the Spirit uses to sprout joy in our hearts. And then joy is what the Spirit uses to reseed hope. That's how closely connected they are. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So real faith, real belief in God through Christ and may the God of hope fill you with joy so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. You hear that? The God of hope give you joy so that you can abound in hope. And that abounding hope produce more joy. And that joy keep reseeding that hope. And so true hope produces true joy. True joy replenishes true hope. And so perhaps you're here this morning and you're really struggling in marriage. Regularly in conflict, in disagreement, discouraged almost every day, just trying to survive, overwhelmed by just all the books you're being handed all the time on marriage, even maybe a bit resentful of everybody talking about good marriage and church talking about good marriage. Maybe you're here, you're in the prime of your life. You've got everything you really ever wanted, but you're just asking, what's the point of this? Why am I getting up every day? Why go to work? Why keep at it? You might be here, you're in the final year of college and you're not sure about your future, often anxious, running to hours of media and entertainment just to relax, to vent frustration, but you feel lonely, discouraged, and you have your whole life ahead of you. And you're like, what's the point? Where's this going? You're here, you're in your 60s, your 70s, you've got grown children, you've got grandkids, they've moved away, they rarely call, you feel discouraged about present life, and you're like, okay, the road ahead's only going to get worse. Much by this stage for you has been lost. You look back on 50 years and just see wreckage. Much has burned down, and you're like, okay, where do you go from here? Like that's, those are the realities that life confronts, that when we really pay attention, when we really wake up each day and ask the right questions, like the world has no answers for that. So how do we move toward real joy through real hope and especially when suffering, when you lose things? when your heart gets broken, when disappointed. Well, that's what First Peter is about. That's what First Peter can help us with. So First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls.
So the Christians to whom Peter is writing are what he calls, verse 1, elect exiles. Followers of Jesus scattered across a world that does not care for Jesus, hates Jesus, hates people who follow Jesus. Verse 6, grieved by various trials. Verse 7, tested by fire. That every day what they confront is pain. That these men and women are, have come to faith in Christ and now then their spouse hasn't. And so this new life they have in Christ, married to an unbelieving spouse, is full of conflict and disagreement and mistreatment. They're losing jobs. They're losing money. They're losing houses. That that's the good news they've received. And so these Christians are writing Peter and saying, hey, we think there's been a mistake. Because you told us we were getting good news. That if we believed this, there would be life, not death. There would be forgiveness, not condemnation. There would be yeah, that somehow this is a good road we are being called to. And so Peter's writing to say, no, you got the right news. No, this is the Christian life. And so he's explaining it. How is it now that your life circumstantially has gotten worse? Can you have more joy, more hope, more peace? Because rejoicing in the middle of affliction seems out of touch, right? It seems like nonsense. Because what he's not suggesting is to be out of tune with reality, that you're just pretending the pain isn't there. No, he's saying, no, you're feeling it. You're facing it. You're seeing it. But it's just not all you're seeing. You're seeing something else, something bigger, beneath it, above it, around it. So how can that be that you... When you really feel alone, walked on, the prime years of your life have either passed or they don't look so good. You feel aimless. And apparently what Peter's saying is you can rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, verse 8. Without the circumstances of your life fundamentally changing or getting better, or maybe getting worse. Remember that was Jesus' promise to Peter, who's writing this, by the Sea of Galilee. He said, hey, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and go where you wished. Not anymore. Because as you're older, you're going to be bound and taken where you don't wish to go. And the Gospel of John says, and by this, Jesus was signifying by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. And after he told him this, he says, follow me. In other words, he's saying, hey, Peter, when you were younger, you had it pretty good, circumstantially. Not anymore. You're going to be taken now where you don't, you wouldn't choose this on your own. And after saying that, he says, follow me. It's that Peter writing this to these Christians suffering in Asia Minor. Well, how? Well, we see here the answer, a living hope in what the second coming of Christ brings. Peter's saying that, that's how. An inheritance that's guarded for you while you are guarded by God for it. That's why the Apostle Peter is saying these things with confidence. And so that's what I want us to think about this morning together is this living hope of the gospel in our hearts when the outer form is wasting away when the outer world is going down, when circumstances either get worse or at least they don't look like they're going to get better. How, in the midst of that, do we have joy and hope in the midst of suffering? And so we'll focus here on 1 Peter 1, and what we'll draw out is seven themes from this passage. You'll have those in your notes there in front of you. Seven themes from 1 Peter 1, just these verses, 3 to 9. So we'll start with the basis for our hope, and that being born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See that in verse 3? In other words, if you're here and you're born again, 
through, the res- through Jesus Christ, then there is a living hope that belongs to you. That's part of what being a born-again hands you, is a living hope. Because if you're really honest about your first birth, that's not a basis for hope. That's a basis for despair. Because the Bible says we were born in sin. We were children of wrath. We were destined for condemnation. And so that's the first step of the gospel and of evangelism, right, is helping people see the despair of their first birth. The utter hopelessness of their first birth, that you were born to die because you were born in sin. And so our first birth is not a basis for hope. So you look around in the world and you see people that look happy, that look hopeful, that are so excited and their social media feed is just abounding with some kind of gladness. If it isn't in Christ, I assure you it's false. They may not know it. To them it's very genuine. But think about how many pictures and articles and scenes get thrown in front of you every day with people on yachts and in mansions and with whatever they have. And it's presenting as here's the good life. Here's hope. Here's happiness. Well, Scripture is clear that, no, that's an illusion. That's fading away. That's corruptible. That's empty. And so scripture, it's like this pair of lenses that God gives us to interpret life and to see it rightly. Because when the Spirit unites us to Christ, gives us new hearts, fills us with his power, we immediately receive that living hope. And the reason it's a living hope is because Jesus lives. If he stayed in the grave, we wouldn't have a living hope. But because on the third day he was raised and lives, our hope is living. That's Peter's point. And this comes about because of God's great mercy. See what he says? Because of his great mercy. In other words, he chose to withhold from us the due consequence of our sin by pouring it out upon his son in our place. So at the cross, we see his mercy. Rather than pour his wrath on us, he poured it on his son. And so we were buried with him. We were raised with him. That's why he gave the church baptism as an ordinance. This great picture of those who confess Christ, who are in Christ, you died with him. That's why you go down into that water. You were raised with him. That's why you come up out of that water. And his death then purchased our forgiveness. We were reconciled to God. We live and die now with a certain expectation that God will raise us because he raised Jesus. That someday, if Jesus tarries, we will all go into the grave. Every one of us, our bodies will die and they will go there. Well, then where's hope? Well, because we know our bodies won't stay there. He will raise us. Our souls will depart to be with him. And that's what he means by this is a living hope. And we now live in a new family with a new father. And as we see in the next verse, and therefore a new inheritance. And the irony of this inheritance is that you and I receive it when we die. That's usually not how inheritance works, right? Usually when do we receive an inheritance? Yeah, when your parents die. But this is an inheritance that we receive when we die. And just to think, even to ask yourself now, how often do you meditate on this? How often do you stop to really dwell on the implications of the resurrection? The implications of Christ dying in your place and being raised because of his righteousness. And if you're in him, when you die, you'll be raised. You'll go to be with him. And that's why Paul in Philippians 1 could say, yeah, to be absent the body is to be present with the Lord. I'd rather be there. Paul had no fear of death. He looked forward to it. He preferred it. But he knew that wasn't his decision. He said, but if it's his will that I remain, well, that's very much better for you meaning the churches. Like his whole reason 
for remaining on earth was to be of service to the churches, to complete the ministry he'd been given. It wasn't because, wow, this life here, this is awesome. I hope this keeps going. That just wasn't the basis for his hope. The basis for his hope was resurrection. And that would have been so strange and perplexing to everybody around him why he just wasn't afraid to die. Because that's how real the resurrection was to him. That's how seriously he took it. Because we each tend to carry particular disappointments, discouragements, losses, areas of life where we desired or expected a certain set of outcomes and then got something very different. And what God is saying here through Peter in Scripture is that even in all that loss, all that disappointment of earthly, there can still be hope and joy. You think of Moses in Numbers 11. He expected the approval of others. That's what he wanted. And yet he received disapproval. He received scorn. Jonah, Jonah 3 and 4, expected the destruction of his enemies, the Ninevites. And instead he got a front row seat to witness their salvation as the instrument God used to bring that salvation. <clears throat> or Elijah, expected revival after Mount Carmel in the fire from heaven, and he's going to get death threats instead. And in all these examples, these men, all prophets, longed and prayed for death. Moses is like, if this is going to be the way of it with people, we're just a life of rejection, then just kill me. Jonah, like if this is what life's going to be, me watching my enemies get saved, then just kill me. Or Elijah, if this is going to be the rest of my life, just on the run, doing all this ministry and yet not seeing revival come in the nation, then just kill me. Well, that should encourage us that these were prophets and their hope was misplaced. And here's God replacing their hope. Their hopeful expectations for the present time were crushed. Everything they longed to see, everything they wanted accomplished fell apart. And so each of them even were needing to learn the right foundation, the right basis for hope. Because how cooperative was God with them in feeding their foundation of hope? Like he knew what they built it on. And God loved them enough to, to crash it. God's not going to change. So if your hope is in marriage, if your hope is in kids, if your hope is in parents, if your hope is in work, in money, in possessions, in health, in your body, in your image, fill in the blank, God knows it. And he loves you enough to not let it work. Because it doesn't work. That doesn't mean he's going to take stuff away just to punish you. It means he's going to take stuff away because it's all going to be taken away anyway. So part of how he's teaching us and training us is, yeah, here's where you put your hope. Is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You being born again through that resurrection. That's a basis for hope. Listen to the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It says, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. So whatever they were facing in Asia, they're like, okay, this is it. We're dead. Whatever they were bearing and carrying, they knew, okay, this is the sentence of death on us. And so there was no hope that life was going to continue. Listen to what he says. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Like Paul's like, God brought us right to the brink of the grave. We were living in the valley of the shadow of death. Where we had no more hope that life was going to continue. But God did this to teach us something to not rely on ourselves. 
but to rely on him who raises the dead. And so are you ready for the Lord to do the same thing in you? To bring you to a place where you despair of life itself. And that be God's gift to you. To teach you to not rely on yourself. But on him who raises the dead. Because how many of us rely on ourselves in ways we don't even understand? How many of us put our hope actually in other people? Put our hope in relationships? Put our hope in things that don't last? And the way you know it is when God takes it away. Or when God threatens it. And we lose our minds. And panic. Well, that's not God hating us. That's God loving us. That's God teaching you yeah, don't hope in that. Hope in me, who raises the dead. But it's also to teach us a new object of our hope, and that's the second point. Look at verse 4, an inheritance. So a new basis for our hope, being born again through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, but then a new object of our hope, an inheritance. And notice how he describes it. It's imperishable, which means it's lasting, it's eternal, it's immune to death. Secondly, it's undefiled, it's pure, it's clean, it's unblemished, it's immune to corruption. Unfading, it's sustained, it's restorable, it's renewable, it's reliable, it's immune to decay. And it's kept in heaven. It's safe. It's guarded. It's immune to theft or loss. Nobody can take that inheritance away. It was interesting. I was watching a, a, some sort of interesting financial show on inflation. And basically said that inflation is so significant and real for every currency even the American dollar, that in 100 years, the dollar you have in your pocket is worth one penny. That's what inflation does. Isn't that something? The most stable, strong currency, some believe, is in the world, in 100 years, loses 98 to 99% of its value just because of inflation and other factors. That's the definition of fading, corruptible, prone to decay. Well, inheritance in heaven doesn't fade. It's not corruptible. It doesn't lose value. It's so important because the reason we spend so much time feeling anxious, joyless, is that we put so much hope in things that perish, things that are defiled, things that fade away, things that can be taken away. Because when we really think about it, everything that we possess in this life will be taken away eventually. Every tangible, physical thing. And before it's lost, it will all be defiled or corrupted in some fashion. Just take our bodies as an example, right? It's the definition of fading away. It's the definition of corruptible. That as I get older, doctor's visits seem to get more bleak. Notice that? You know, just the more you go for physician checkups, the more the years go on, the less hopeful your doctor seems. You notice that? But he seems to know or she seems to know where to put her or his hope and it doesn't seem to be in our bodies. Because with every passing year, that thing's not going up. It's going down. There's not less on the scans. There's more on the scans. Slowly fading away, decaying. And the longer we live, the more we're going to experience that. 
And so what the Lord does is he uses suffering, he uses affliction, he uses loss to expose where our lowercase d desires have actually become capital D desires. That's one thing he's doing. Because it's not wrong to desire a healthy body or to desire a, a, a conflict-free marriage or to desire a good job or good income or to desire a house or a car or children or fill in the blank. Those aren't wrong to desire so long as they're lowercase d desires. But in ways we don't usually realize, those quickly become capital D desires. Not just open-handed prayer requests, but closed-fisted demands. I must have this. I cannot lose this. And the Lord uses loss and suffering to help us see where those lowercase d desires have been capital D desires. Just ask yourself, what are the things that if you lost it, you, you would lose all desire to live? If a certain thing was taken away or if you didn't achieve a certain thing, you wouldn't see the point of living. I mean, it doesn't take long for us to think honestly about our lives and go, okay, yeah, there's, there's at least three or four things that if God took that, I'd say, just kill me. So I can't live without that. Or I must get this. Maybe food and drink. Maybe relational escape. Yeah, it's just, yeah, come to realize this past week even that I've developed an allergy, I think, to lactose, to dairy. And it happened because I ate something and immediately my throat started swelling up. And Ruth saw it immediately, heard it immediately, just in the way I was talking and the way I was coughing. And so she said, hey, you need to start keeping track of that. Just every time you eat something, just note. And I remember I thought, I don't think I want to do that. Because <laughs> I don't think I want to know. Can I just keep pretending? And I said, this can't be true. There's no way as you get older you develop new allergies. And she's just smiling at me like, yeah, I keep believing that, man. You absolutely develop new allergies. And this is after last year, the year before, realizing, okay, this food does this. To, like, another 10 years, I won't be able to eat anything anymore or drink anything anymore. And so it's actually a lesson. And as the years go on, like, the world is more at war with me than it used to be. Food is more at war. And so if my hope is food, then life's getting really out of hand or drink, or sexual pleasure, or health and physical vitality, or medical treatment, or retirement. I was reading an article of a really wealthy billionaire who's investing in all this medical research because his hope is in 30 years there'll be a cure for. In 40 years we'll know how to prolong life to 120. And so all his energy and money is going to invest in medical treatments and care because he's thinking by, this, by the time he's this age, we would have solved this problem so that he doesn't die. And that's the hope, is immortality. And there's nothing secure in that. And that brings us to that third point, the security of our hope. It's not our power, it's God's power. And that's verse 5. who by God's power are being guarded, that the inheritance promised to us is not earned, it's not achieved, it's given, it's received. The gospel doesn't say if you just work hard enough, if you just do enough good things, God will take you in. There's no hope in that message. That's the message of every religion in the world. If you just do enough good things and not too many bad things, if you just follow these rules, do these sacraments, walk these steps, you'll get to heaven and whoever God is, he'll let you in. That's what all religion says. And that's dying with a hope that whoever God is, he's no better than you are. 
that's what we're dying with a hope in. Is that when I face him, he's no better than me. Which is why he has to let me in. But what if he's so infinitely holy and righteous that no creature who isn't perfectly holy can survive his presence? Well, then what's your hope in? Can't be you, can't be me. It has to be him. You know, over and over, God says, Do not fear, I'm with you, Isaiah 41 10. I will never leave you or forsake you, Hebrews 13. All the Father gives to the Son, he won't lose any. We'll all make it home, John 6, 37. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power at work in us, Ephesians 1, 19. So not only is your inheritance secure, but you're secure. That's the promise of the gospel. That's the hope of the gospel. Though trials come, eventually death will come, None of that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ. That's Romans 8. And so one of the things trials and suffering exposes is how much we rely on ourselves. How much we rely on our power. But all it takes is one good virus to remind us of weakness, of frailty. And so we need to unpack those kinds of implications of God's promise to protect us, even to protect our faith by his power. Like we have to think about that every day. When we get up and go, all right, Lord, it's your power, it's not mine. Like it's your hand that's going to get me across the finish line, not my hand. That in his presence there's fullness of joy, at his right hand are pleasures forever. And it's his right hand that'll keep us at his right hand. And so we have to learn to believe those kinds of promises by faith. And that's that next point, the mechanism of our hope. The means of receiving and standing in that hope is faith. That's verses 5, 7, 8, 9. Hebrews 11 one says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen because God says it's there and because God says it's true. And so we're meant to feed faith in us. We're meant to feed one another's faith because that's the means of hope. That's how we hope, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Notice how verse 5, we're guarded through faith. Verse 7, genuineness of your faith. Verse 8, you believe in him. Verse 9, outcome of your faith. And what we're meant to take away there is when Peter talks about faith, this is not a small, flippant, shallow thing. This is a big thing. This is a deep thing. This is a thing that only God can give and sustain. So when the world talks about, oh, just have faith, or, oh, they have such a great faith, and, yeah, pick and choose your faith, like they're talking about something that's human, something shallow, something fading. What Peter's talking about is a faith that is deep that is mountain-like, that God gives. Because it's a faith that we need to sustain day by day because the timeline of our hope, there's the next point, is the salvation ready to be revealed. Verses 5 and 9. Because hope, by definition, is forward-looking. Hope anticipates Hope expects. And this pushes against the tendency in the world in which we live and the tendency of the flesh to just want immediate gratification. Like when we're suffering, we're not thinking, I hope this lasts a while. Right, we're thinking, Lord, get me out of this now. And yet God knows how to just 
test faith, refine faith, strengthen faith, so that it waits. Because according to verse 5, our salvation is ready to be revealed. But that may mean in 70 years. That may mean after we're dead. But that's God's sense of time. No, it's ready to be revealed. His coming is near. But that's his sense of time. According to verse 9, salvation of our souls is an outcome of our faith, something future, something resting in the hands of the Lord and his timing. Because suffering just, again, it's a constant temptation to fixate on present circumstances. Because suffering is loud. Pain screams in a way that we're like, okay, get me out of this right now. Paul had that thorn in the flesh that he pled three times with the Lord to take it away. And yet all three times the Lord says, no, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in your weakness. And if that's how he talked to Paul, then surely that's how he talks to us. That affliction comes, we pray for God to remove it, which is fine to pray for that. And if he doesn't remove it, what must it mean? It must mean it's for our good. It must mean that he thinks his grace is sufficient for us in that trial. Otherwise, he would remove it. And every time we pray and God says no, that's speaking to his grace is sufficient for us. Because the timeline of our hope is a salvation ready to be revealed. And so I just think so much... Energy, prayer, time, words in our lives have to be devoted to learning to wait. It's not accidental that you'll have that conversation with your kids more than any other conversation. Right? How many conversations have you parents have you had with your kids about waiting? Because when do your kids want it? Right now. Whatever that food is, whatever that candy is, whatever that gift is. Isn't that the hardest part even of Christmas is you wrap all those gifts and put them out there under that tree. It looks so nice. And then don't realize you're torturing your kids for the next month. (laughs) Because they see and their name is on it. They just want it now. I remember there would be different times when we'd walk out and there would be different presents. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure that wrapper wasn't torn like that. (laughs) When we put it under there. Just somebody peeking. And that's just a Christmas gift. How much more eternal life, how much more the resurrection, just it's hard to wait. And yet God is teaching us how to wait. The timeline of that hope. But that's also how he matures our hope. The maturation of our hope is through trials. It's verses 6 to 7. Because how many of us do we hope in the absence of trials? That's actually our hope. What I hope is, is to not suffer at all. I hope not to have any pain. And scripture says, yeah, that's not hope. Because the Lord is going to use trials to teach hope. Use trials to fortify hope. Listen to Romans 5, 3 and 4. We rejoice in our sufferings, Paul says. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. I've used the illustration many times. It's like if you find a 50-ton piece of gold ore on your property, you're just back there digging for some reason, and you find this 50-ton piece of gold ore, which is just a big, ugly rock but there's gold all in it. You're not going to have a problem turning that over to someone to crush it to dust and then put it into a furnace in order to raise the temperature and separate the impurities from that gold and then slough those impurities away and then raise the temperature of the furnace even more to slough more impurities away because what you're after is you want pure gold. 
not partial gold. Well, what Peter's saying here is your faith to God is more precious than gold. Your faith is more valuable to him than gold. And so he's going to use trials like a furnace to separate out all the impurities and slough them away so that our faith becomes purer like gold. And so he doesn't design trials for our lives as a joke or some act of cruelty, but careful, strategic, necessary means by which the Lord matures and purifies our hope. Because how many of us is our prayer, Lord, whatever it takes, mature me. Whatever it takes, conform me to the image of your son. Whatever it takes, help me love you more and the world less. Whatever it takes, like how many of us have prayed that prayer? I hope we have. But do we mean it? Because God doesn't need our permission to bring those trials, but he would love to have our heart submitted in it so that when trials come, you can know for certain this is what it takes. When affliction comes, you can know, okay, this must be the answer to that prayer. Because we can say all day long, right, that, yeah, I'm going to change my life in this area and that area, or I'm going to exercise better I'm going to eat better it's just we just don't until cancer comes or until you start having a heart attack there's something about pain something about affliction that forces change it forces us to give up things that we just wouldn't give up That's why we've all also uttered that silly prayer of just, you know, Lord, yeah, if you'll just, you know, maybe just $5 million. And I promise you, I will use it for so much good stuff. Lord, I'll give it to missions. I'll do this. I'll do this. Um, if I could just have this, then I would do that. It's an illusion. God knows. He knows what we'll do. He knows what will ruin us. So why else does he withhold things that you ask for? Well, because he knows better than you do what you need and don't need. That's how he matures us. That life disappointments, areas of personal failure, all those can serve as spiritual pruning. Like even times where you or I really blow it and really look silly and awful in front of other people, we really lose face and image that we can actually say, based on what Peter's saying, all right, Lord, this is good for me. Like, this is good for me. Because maybe we hope in the praise of man. Maybe we hope in our own image. Maybe what gets us really excited about life is how good people think of us. When that moment comes and we look bad, we look silly, we get exposed, and now all of a sudden life isn't worth living. And we just want to crawl in a hole and die. Well, that says something about where our hope is. Which is why that moment of humiliation, that moment of embarrassment is part of the gift. And so we have to learn to see the world and experience the world through God's eyes. So that when that kind of trouble comes, it's hard, right, to say, okay, Lord, this doesn't feel good, but I know it's good for me. I know you're doing something with it. Which is why the expression of our hope really can be rejoicing. Verses 6 and 8. The gospel-rooted hope produces hope-rooted joy. Because whatever this is that Peter's describing, it's deep, it's lasting. It's meant to change everything. That The heavenly father is going to be your father forever. The joys of his presence will be your joys forever. The new heavens and the new earth will be yours to explore and to delight in forever. You'll see and hear Jesus forever. 
you'll be in the presence of his people in his presence forever. Every tear wiped away because there'll be no more pain, no more loss, no more sorrow. Only rejoicing. Your body will be glorified forever. Your relationships will be reconciled and at peace forever. And so joy is the gift that our Savior offers in the present time. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And trials, though that's the circumstances, joy is the fruit. And rejoicing is the expression of that fruit. That's the point. Hope produces joy, and joy produces rejoicing. The venting of that joy In this you rejoice, verse 6. Verse 8, rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Meaning there just aren't enough quality or quantity of words to capture how great this joy is. And so you rejoice with a joy that's inexpressible. Isn't that ironic? And it's full of glory. Because it's filled with thoughts of glory emotions that arise from glory, affections that arise in response to knowing a person who's himself glory. That's why Paul can say in Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. That's hope that produces joy that rejoices. He says the sufferings of this present time, it's just not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. That's what he's trying to help us see and grasp. Well, we're going to have a little bit of time here for discussion, and you'll have the questions there in your notes. So as we have, just dividing up into groups of four, five, six, and just to have some time where you share, like, okay, the source of your security, confidence, hope, what is suffering really teaching you about that? What is God teaching you in the midst of suffering? To what degree are you seeing evidence of this gospel-rooted joy really bearing fruit in your life? And then thirdly, how might you encourage others around you, others in the church, others in your relationships to to hope in the promises of 1 Peter 1 and be encouraged by those? So those are the questions we'll talk about. Let's take 10 minutes or so, and then I'll close us in prayer after that.